Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Casey. Grab a cup of coffee and let's get our fix. Hey addicts, this week we are getting into part two of the Moore's murders and I am so excited. Part two is where the tea is at. As for us though, we will not be drinking tea and we are taking it back to a simple Snickers mocha and as you have probably guessed, it's iced. This week we are going to be shouting out Lindsay S, Mike B, and Sarah H. They have liked, commented, rated, shared, reviewed, or donated. So we want to thank you guys so much. We love you guys and we are so grateful for all the support you've been giving us with our podcast. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please donate, like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or on the World Wide Web at CrimeAddictsPodcast.com. On our website, Addicts, you'll find a spot where you can submit case recommendations, find some delicious coffee recipes, and there's also a pretty cool donate button. And if you're an Amazon shopper like myself, go ahead and click the Amazon link. It will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. This process will help support our show and it does not cost you anything extra. Hey addicts, so last week we introduced the Moores murders as well as the deadly duo of Myra Henley and Ian Brady of England. As a recap, we discussed the details of each of their upbringings and how they met, but most importantly, the gruesome deaths of five children, including Pauline Reed, John Kilbride, Keith Bennett, Leslie Ann Downey, and Edward Evans. Through the investigation and trial processes, on May 6, 1966, Henley was sentenced to two life sentences for the deaths of Leslie Ann and Edward plus a concurrent seven-year term for harboring Brady in the knowledge that he murdered John. Brady was sentenced to three life sentences for the deaths of Leslie Ann, Edward, and John. Don't forget, the Murder Abolition of Death Penalty Act had went into force during the time that Brady and Henley were held in prison, abolishing the death penalty for murder, taking the possibility of them receiving the death penalty off the table completely. So we are now back for part two, where we're going to deep dive into the aftermath of these horrific crimes, starting with their time spent in prison. Casey, you want to start us off? I would love to. Henley tried to transform herself into a respectable middle-class woman while serving a life sentence behind bars for her sickening crimes. The brassy blonde killer believed she could recreate herself through self-improvement courses and become, quote, intelligent, well-educated, and cultured. Henley took up hobbies such as badminton, pottery, and tapestry, as well as studying for an open university degree in humanities. She became a practicing Catholic and, quote, threw herself with enthusiasm into singing in a prison choir, even winning a music prize for a love song. The official files revealed the staggering lengths Henley went to in her bid to convince authorities she was a reformed character and suitable for release. But she did not fool everyone. Some prison officers continued to insist Henley shouldn't be trusted, describing her as, quote, cold calculating and devoid of emotion, an arch manipulator with a massive superiority complex. 
And a psychology professor who has reviewed the case told us he believes Hindley was faking her reform in a, quote, clinical strategy to obtain parole, end quote. On Friday, January 7th, 2000, after two further trips to the hospital, Myra Hindley was scheduled for an emergency surgery at a specialist brain center to cure a cerebral aneurysm, a potentially fatal brain swelling. Her condition was described as serious and with doctors saying that without treatment, it could prove fatal. Three days later, Henley asked doctors to, quote, let her die if the operation on her brain failed. The request came after she had asked her lawyers to draw up a will. The surgery was later deemed as a success, but doctors continued to describe Henley's condition as, quote, fragile. On Tuesday, February 29th, 2000, BBC TV announced it would air a documentary that depicted Hindley saying she wished she had been hanged for her crimes. The documentary, titled Modern Times, showed Hindley asking, quote, whether some crimes are so terrible that the people who commit them should die behind bars, end quote. The program also features an actress reading from the hundreds of letters that Hindley sent to the show's producer telling the story of her meeting and relationship with Brady. One letter states, quote, I knew I was a selfish coward, but I could not bear the thought of being hanged, although over the years I wish I had been. It would have solved so many problems. The family of the victims would have derived some peace of mind and the tabloids would not have been able to manipulate them as they do to this day. I would have made a total confession to the priest before I hanged and would not still be half crippled by the burden of guilt that will not go away. But I didn't hang. End quote. In the letters, Henley also detailed how the strength of her love for Brady had been part of the reason she allowed herself to be pushed into murder. She described him as having, quote, such a powerful personality, such an overwhelming charisma. If he'd told me the moon was made of green cheese or that the sun rose in the west, I would have believed him, end quote. The victim's families objected to the program being screened, describing it as, quote, a disgrace and an insult, end quote. Alan West, father of Leslie Ann, was interviewed, and he asked, quote, Why can't the families be spared the constant indignity of Henley's continuous publicity seeking? End quote. On Thursday, March 30th, 2000, Henley's bid for freedom suffered a serious setback when an appeal to the House of Lords for her early release was defeated. A panel of five lords ruled her life sentence, quote, must mean life, in a view of her, quote, exceptionally wicked and uniquely evil crimes. Commenting on the ruling, Lord Stein said, quote, even in the sordid history of crimes against children, the murders committed by Henley jointly with Ian Brady were uniquely evil, end quote. On hearing the decision, Henley's lawyers said they planned a further legal challenge in the European Court of Human Rights. Henley died in 2002 at age 60. Prior to her death, Henley had launched a series of legal challenges to win her freedom, but had been informed that she would never be released from prison. Following the official announcement of Henley's death, the Manchester Guardian reported that she had died within weeks of a decision by the House of Lords, which was, quote, likely to have led to her release, end quote. A ruling on an appeal brought by double murderer Anthony Anderson, who was challenging the power of politicians rather than judges, 
to set the lengths of murderous prison sentences was imminent and was expected to succeed. In 1985, Lord Lane recommended that Henley should serve no more than 25 years, but subsequent home secretaries fixed her tariff first at 30 years and then at whole life, meaning that she would never be released. Mr. Blunkett had already promised to pass a new law to keep high-profile killers such as Henley behind bars if the current system was declared illegal. Her confidential files should have remained secret for 50 years, but they were released early because of her notoriety. Among the millions of pages of typed and handwritten documents about Prisoner 965055 were board reports from the annual reviews that life prisoners undergo. Henley's 35 reports reveal how she was viewed by fellow prisoners, welfare workers, probation officers, warders, and chaplains. Some officials described the cold-eyed child killer as an extremely meticulous person, even obsessive. Another early report said that she had a very conscientious attitude towards her job in jail. She was put in charge of the kitchen on E-Wing at Holloway Prison in London, but it soon became clear that she thought she was better than her fellow inmates. Quote, Myra is fundamentally a very arrogant woman and considers herself superior to the other members of her wing end quote, said a 1968 report. She reveled in her celebrity status and thought herself among the elite lifers. Henley was 23 when she was jailed for life in May of 1966. For the first five years of her sentence, Henley remained loyal to Glasgow-born psychopath Brady, and they wrote to each other. But in 1971, she ended their relationship having fallen in love with one of her prison officers, who was a former nun, Patricia Cairns. With Cairns' help, Henley planned a prison escape that was thwarted when soap and plaster impressions of jail keys were found. Henley had been told she would serve 25 years in jail before being considered for parole, but began a campaign to show she had reformed. She befriended famous and influential supporters such as prison reformer Lord Longford and aristocrat David Astor. And she was visited in prison by liberal figures like broadcaster Ludovic Kennedy and Cardinal Basil Hume. Henley had a string of lesbian lovers in jail, including fellow con Nina Wilde. She allegedly developed a close relationship with serial killer Rose West. Henley became a keen student. One observer said, quote, She is a young woman of superior intellect and academic ability and has almost total recall of the spoken and written word. End quote. Henley built up a circle of followers who did cleaning, fetching, and carrying chores for her, but she got on well with her fellow inmates. One account reads, quote, Women have confessed their horror at learning they were to join a wing with Myra on it, only to admit later what a pleasant and easy woman she was to get along with, end quote. Henley enjoyed reading 19th century novels and 20th century poetry. After her transfer to Durham Prison, one tutor remained skeptical, saying, quote, I admire the way she refused to allow herself to become a cabbage, but I do not trust her. She appears to be a scheming woman building up contacts with anyone with influence, end quote. 
1981, a report concluded that, quote, she has changed from the brassy blonde of more than 16 years ago to an intelligent, well-educated woman who possesses taste and whose views seem culturally more attuned to middle-class values, end quote. Yet she never lost the ability to manipulate others. One report states, quote, she was cold and calculating and devoid of emotion, able to smile or cry as the need arose, end quote. Henley was transferred to High Point Prison, Suffolk, in 1998. She spent her final years in unofficial segregation, a 40-a-day smoker. She was diagnosed with angina in 1999 and suffered a stroke on November 15, 2002. She died from pneumonia caused by heart disease. Dr. Tom Clark, a research lecturer at Sheffield University, has spent three years trawling through Henley's prison files. He said, quote, the people closest to her believed she really had reformed, end quote. Okay, let's jump into Brady a little bit more. We've been talking about Henley all day, so let's jump into Brady's imprisonment experience. So following his conviction, Brady was moved to Durham Prison, where he asked to live in solitary confinement. He spent 19 years in mainstream prisons before he was declared criminally insane in November of 1985 and sent to the high-security Ashworth Psychiatric Hospital. He has since made it clear that he never wants to be released. The trial judge had recommended that his life sentence should mean life, and successive home secretaries have agreed with that decision. In 1982, the Lord Chief Justice Lord Lane said of Brady, quote, This is the case, if ever, there is to be one when a man should stay in prison till he dies, end quote. In contrast to the common belief that serial killers often continue with their crimes until they are caught, Brady claimed in 2005 that the Moore's murders were, quote, merely an existential exercise of just over a year, which was concluded in December of 1964, end quote. By then, he went on to claim he and Henley had turned their attention to armed robbery, for which they had begun to prepare by acquiring guns and vehicles. In 2001, Brady wrote The Gates of Janus, which was published by Feral House, an underground U.S. publisher. The book, Brady's analysis of serial murder and specific serial killers, sparked outrage when announced in Britain. Winnie Johnson, the mother of Keith Bennett, received a letter from Brady at the end of 2005 in which, she said, he claimed that he could take police to within 20 yards or 18 meters of her son's body, but the authorities would not allow it. Brady did not refer directly to Keith by name and did not claim he could take investigators directly to the grave, but spoke of the, quote, clarity of his recollections. In early 2006, prison authorities intercepted a package addressed to Brady from a female friend containing 50 paracetamol pills, a potentially lethal dose hidden inside a hollowed-out crime novel. The death in November 2007 of John Straffen, who had spent 55 years in prison for a triple child murder, meant that Brady became the longest-serving prisoner in England and Wales. As of 2011, he remains incarcerated in Ashworth. After Brady began a hunger strike in 1999, he was force-fed 
fell ill, and was transferred to another hospital for tests. He recovered, and in March 2000, asked for a judicial review of the decision to force-feed him, but was refused permission. Quote, Myra gets the potentially fatal brain condition, while I have to fight simply to die. I have had enough. I want nothing. My objective is to die and release myself from this once and for all. So, you see, my death strike is rational and pragmatic. I'm only sorry I didn't do it decades ago, and I'm eager to leave this cesspit in a coffin, Brady said. It has been reported that Brady has written an autobiography and has given his solicitor instructions that it may only be published after Brady's death. On May 15, 2017, Brady died at the age of 79 of a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, a condition that affects his lungs. He had been fed through a tube since he started a hunger strike in 1999, and it has been reported that he pulled out the tube a few days before he died. Five and a half hours before he died, he was found to be, quote, labored in his breathing and agitated, end quote. However, Brady managed to make one final bizarre request with his dying breath. He ordered that two locked Samsonite briefcases should be taken from his bedside and handed to his solicitor, Robin Macon. He had already insisted they should not be opened until after his death. Brady requested for his cremation ashes to be scattered on the same moors where he had killed and buried his victims. However, a judge ordered scattering his remains on Saddleworth moors must be banned. Instead, he was cremated with no music or flowers allowed at Southworth Crematorium at 10 p.m. and cremated in their backup incinerator, which means nobody else had to be cremated in the same machine. His ashes were disposed in Liverpool Marina late at night under police guard. In 1985, Brady allegedly confessed to Fred Harrison, a journalist working for the Sunday People, that he had also been responsible for the murders of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett, something that the police already suspected as both children lived in the same area as Brady and Henley and had disappeared at about the same time as their other victims. The subsequent newspaper reports prompted the Greater Manchester Police, GMP, to reopen the case in an investigation headed by Detective Chief Superintendent Peter Topping, who had been appointed head of GMP's Criminal Investigation Department, CID, the previous year. On July 3, 1985, Detective Topping visited Brady then being held at Gartree Prison, but found him, quote, scornful of any suggestion that he had confessed to more murders, end quote. Police nevertheless decided to resume their search of Saddleworth Moor once more using the photographs taken by Brady and Henley to help them identify possible burial sites. Meanwhile, in November 1986, Winnie wrote a letter to Henley begging to know what had happened to her son, a letter that Henley seemed to be, quote, genuinely moved by. It ended, quote, I am a simple woman. I work in the kitchens of Christie's Hospital. It has taken me five weeks labor to write this letter because it is so important to me that it is understood by you for what it is, a plea for help. Please, Miss Henley, help me, end quote. I don't know about you guys, but I just got goosebumps. Police visited Henley, then being held in Cookham Wood, a few days after she had received the letter 
And although she refused to admit any involvement in the killings, she agreed to help by looking at photographs and maps to try to identify spots that she had visited with Brady. She showed particular interest in photographs of the area around Holland, Brown, Knoll, and Shiny Brook, but said that it was impossible to be sure of the locations without visiting the moor. The security considerations for such a visit were significant. There were threats made against her should she visit the moors, but Home Secretary Douglas Hurd agreed with Detective Topping that it would be worth the risk. Writing in 1989, Detective Topping said that he felt, quote, quite cynical about Henley's motivation in helping the police. Although the letter from Winnie may have played a part, he believed that Henley's real concern was that, knowing of Brady's precarious mental state, she was afraid that he might decide to cooperate with the police and wanted to make certain that she, and not Brady, was the one to gain whatever benefit there may have been in terms of public approval. Hindley made the first of two visits to assist the police search of Saddleworth Moor on December 16, 1986. Four police cars left Cookman Wood at 4.30 a.m. At about this time, police closed all roads onto the moor, which was patrolled by 200 officers, 40 of them armed. Hindley and her solicitor arrived by helicopter from an airfield near Maidstone, touching down at 8.30 a.m. Wearing a donkey jacket and a baklava mask, she was driven and walked around the area. It was difficult for Henley to make a connection between her memories of the area and what she saw on that day, and she was apparently nervous of the helicopters flying overhead. At 3 o'clock p.m., she was returned to the helicopter and taken back to Cookman Wood. Detective Topping was criticized by the press, who described it as a fiasco, publicity stunt, and a mindless waste of money. He was forced to defend the visit pointing out its benefits. Quote, we had taken the view that we needed a thorough systematic search of the moor. It would have never been possible to carry out such a search in private, end quote. Detective Topping continued to visit Henley in prison, along with her solicitor, Michael Fisher, and her spiritual counselor, the Reverend Peter Timms, who had been a prison governor before resigning to become a minister at the Methodist Church. She made a formal confession to police on February 10th, 1987, admitting her involvement in all five murders, but news of her confession was not made public for more than a month. The tape recording of her statement was over 17 hours long. Detective Topping described it as a, quote, very well worked out performance in which I believe she told me just as much as she wanted me to know and no more, end quote. He also commented that he quote, was struck by the fact that she was never there when the killings took place. She was in the car, over the brow of the hill, in the bathroom, and even in the case of Evans' murder, in the kitchen, end quote. Topping concluded that he felt he had witnessed a great performance rather than a genuine confession. Police visited Brady in prison again and told him of Hindley's confession, which at first he refused to believe. Once presented with some of the details that Henley had provided of Pauline Reed's abduction, Brady decided he too was prepared to confess, but on one condition, that immediately afterwards he be given the means to commit suicide, a request that was impossible for the authorities to comply with. At about the same time, Winnie sent Henley another letter, again pleading with her to assist the police in finding the body of her son, Keith. In the letter, 
Winnie was sympathetic to Hindley over the criticism surrounding her first visit. Hindley, who had not replied to the first letter, responded by thanking Winnie for both letters, explaining that her decision not to reply to the first resulted from the negative publicity that surrounded it. She claimed that had Winnie written to her 14 years earlier, she would have confessed and helped the police. She also paid tribute to Detective Topping and thanked Winnie for her sincerity. Henley made her second visit to the Moor in March of 1987. This time, the level of security surrounding her visit was considerably higher. She stayed overnight in Manchester at the flat of the police chief in charge of GMP training at Sedgley Park and visited the Moor twice. She confirmed to police that the two areas in which they were concentrating their search, Holland Brown Knoll and Hogreen, were correct, although she was unable to locate either of the graves. She did later remember, though, that as Pauline Reed was being buried, she had been sitting next to her on a patch of grass and could see the rocks of Holland Brown Knoll silhouetted against the night sky. In April of 1987, news of Henley's confession became public. Amidst strong media interest, Lord Longford pleaded for her release, writing that her continuing detention to satisfy, quote, mob emotion was not right. Fisher persuaded Henley to release a public statement in which she explained her reasons for denying her complicity in the murders, her religious experiences in prison, the letter from Winnie, and that she saw no possibility of release. She also exonerated David from any part of the murders except that of Edward. Over the next few months, interest in the search decreased, but Henley's clue had directed the police to focus their efforts on a specific area. On the afternoon of July 1st, 1987, after more than 100 days of searching, they found a body lying in a shallow grave 3 feet or 0.9 meters below the surface only 100 yards or 90 meters from the place where Leslie Ann had been found. Brady had been cooperating with the police for some time, and when news reached him that Pauline's body had been discovered, he made a formal confession to Detective Topping. He also issued a statement to the press, through his solicitor, saying that he too was prepared to help the police in their search. Brady was taken to the moor on July 3rd, but he seemed to lose his bearings, blamed changes that had taken place in the intervening years, and the search was called off at 3 p.m., by which time a large crowd of press and television reporters had gathered on the moor. Detective Topping refused to allow Brady a second visit to the moors, and a few days after his visit, Brady wrote a letter to BBC television reporter Peter Gold, giving some sketchy details of five additional murders that he claimed to have carried out. Brady refused to identify his alleged victims, and the police failed to discover any unsolved crimes matching the few details he had supplied. Henley told detectives that she knew nothing of these killings. On August 24, 1987, police called off their search of Saddleworth Moor, despite not having found Keith's body. Brady was taken to the moor for a second time on December 1st, but he was once again unable to locate the burial site. Keith's body remains undiscovered as of this podcast, although his family continues to search the moor to this day. Although Brady and Henley had confessed to the murders of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett, the Department of Public Prosecutions, DPP, decided that nothing would be gained by a further trial, as both were already serving life sentences, no further punishment could be inflicted, and a second trial might even help 
Henley's case for parole by giving her a platform for which to make a public confession. During the 1990s, Henley claimed that she took part in the killings only because Brady had drugged her, was blackmailing her with pornographic pictures he had taken of her, and had threatened to kill her younger sister, Maureen. In a 2008 television documentary series on female serial killers broadcast on ITV3, Hanley's solicitor, Andrew McCooey, reported that she had said to him, quote, I ought to have been hanged. I deserved it. My crime was worse than Brady's because I incited the children and they would have never entered the car without my role. I have always regarded myself as worse than Brady, end quote. In 2003, the police launched Operation Meta, and again searched the moor for the body of Keith Bennett. They read statements from Brady and Henley and also studied photographs taken by the pair. Their search was aided by the use of sophisticated modern equipment, including a U.S. satellite used to look for evidence of soil movement. The BBC reported on July 1, 2009 that the Greater Manchester Police had officially given up the search for Keith Bennett, saying that, quote, only a major scientific breakthrough or fresh evidence would see the hunt for his body restart, end quote. Detectives were also reported as saying that they would never again give Brady the attention or thrill of leading another fruitless search on the moor where they believe Keith's remains are buried. Donations from members of the public funded a search of the moor for Keith's body by volunteers from a Welsh search and rescue team that began in March 2010. Okay, so we've talked about Henley and Brady's imprisonment experiences and a second investigation that took place. So let's move on to talking about the aftermath and how this impacted some other characters that we've discussed in this story. So David Smith is where we're going to start. He became, quote, reviled by the people of Manchester, end quote, despite having been instrumental in bringing Brady and Henley to justice. While her sister was on trial, Maureen, who was eight months pregnant, was attacked in the elevator of the building which her and David lived at the time. Their home was vandalized and hate mail was regularly posted through their mailbox. Maureen feared for her children, quote, I couldn't let my children out of my sight when they were little. They were too young to tell them why they had to stay in to explain why they couldn't go out to play like all the other children, end quote. After knifing another man during a fight, in an attack he claimed was triggered by the abuse he had suffered since the trial, David was sentenced to three years in prison in 1969. The same year, his children were taken into the care of the local authorities. His wife, Maureen, moved from Underwood Court to a single-bedroom property and found work in a department store. Subjected to whispering campaigns and petitions to remove her from the estate where she lived, she received no support from her family. Her mother had actually supported Henley during the trial. On his release from prison, David moved in with the girl who became his second wife and won custody of his three sons. Maureen managed to repair the relationship with her mother and moved into a council property in Gordon. She divorced David in 1973 and married a truck driver, Bill Scott, with whom she had a daughter. Maureen and her immediate family made regular visits to see Henley, who reportedly adored her niece. In 1980, Maureen suffered a brain hemorrhage. 
Henley was granted permission to visit her sister in the hospital, but she arrived an hour after Maureen's death. Sheila and Patrick Kilbride, who were by then divorced, were present at Maureen's funeral, believing that Henley might make an appearance. Patrick Kilbride mistook Bill Scott's daughter from a previous relationship, Anne Wallace, for Henley, and tried to attack her before being knocked to the ground by another mourner. The police were called to restore order. Shortly before her death, at the age of 70, Sheila Kilbride said, quote, If she, meaning Henley, ever comes out of jail, I'll kill her, end quote. In 1972, David was acquitted of the murder of his father, who had been suffering from an incurable cancer. David pleaded guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to two days' detention. He remarried and moved to Lincolnshire with his three sons and was exonerated of any participation in the Moore's murders by Henley's confession in 1987. Joan Reed, who's Pauline Reed's mother, was admitted to Springfield Mental Hospital in Manchester. She was present under heavy sedation at the funeral of her daughter on August 7, 1987. Anne West, mother of Leslie Ann Downey, died in 1999 from cancer of the liver. Since her daughter's death, she had campaigned to ensure that Henley remained in prison, and doctors said that the stress had contributed to the severity of her illness. Winnie, mother of Keith Bennett, continues to visit Saddleworth Moor, where it is believed that the body of her son is buried. The house in which Brady and Henley lived on Wardlebrook Avenue and where Edward Evans was murdered was demolished by local council. Less than two weeks after Henley's death on November 25, 2002, the law lords agreed that judges, not politicians, should decide how long a criminal spends behind bars and thus strip the home secretary of the power to set minimum sentences. Brady wrote a letter to Home Secretary Jack Straw in support of keeping Henley in jail for the rest of her life. The letter also provides Brady with the opportunity to, quote, clarify certain points. The following are excerpts from that letter published in full on BBC Online. On their relationship, quote, First accept the determinant. Myra Henley and I once loved each other. We were a unified force, not two conflicting entities. The relationship was not based on the delusional concept of folly adieu, but on the conscious slash subconscious emotional and psychological affinity. She regarded periodic homicides as rituals of reciprocal innervation, marriage ceremonies, theoretically binding us even closer. As the records show, before we met, my criminal activities had been primarily mercenary. Afterwards, a duality of motivation developed. Existential philosophy melded with the spirituality of death and became predominant. We experimented with the concept of total possibility. Instead of the requisite Lady Macbeth, I got Messalina. A part of our futures would have been taken radically divergent courses. End quote. On his influence over her, quote, the reason why the trial judge made the distinction between Myra Henley and myself before entering the witness box, I instructed both her counsel and my own to ask me specific questions designed to give the fullest opportunity of providing a cover for Myra. This managed to get her off on one murder charge. I also told her to adopt a distancing strategy 
when she went into the witness box, admitting to minor crimes while denying major. When, upon my advice, she appealed against sentence on the grounds that she should have been tried separately, Lord Chief Justice Parker denied the appeal, stating that, Far from being disadvantaged by being tried with me, it had been to her great benefit as all my advice had been in her favor. For 20 years, I continued to ratify the cover I had given her on the trial while, in contrast, she systematically began to fabricate upon it to my determent. Therefore, when I learned of the Panorama program this week that she was now claiming that I threatened to kill her if she did not participate in the Moore's murders, I considered that the lowest lie of all. The fact that she continued to write several lengthy letters a week to me for seven years after we were in prison contradicts this clinical allegation. Perhaps her expedient demonomania now implies that I exercised an evil influence over her for seven years from my prison cell, 300 miles distant. In character, she is essentially a chameleon, adopting whatever camouflage will suit and voicing whatever she believes the individual wishes to hear. This subliminal soft shell lured the innocent and naive. As for the parole board, I advised her to build on three pillars, educational studies, powerful contacts, and religion. She did. I myself have never applied for parole and never shall, which is why I can afford the luxury of versity and free expression, end quote. On her campaign for release, quote, in the aforementioned paranormal program, former Home Office Minister A. Widcombe stated, there are 23 prisoners in the UK who will never be released. Why has the public heard so little from them? In this and other special hospitals run by prison warders, there are also patients no one has heard of who have been rotting behind bars for 40 and 50 years for relatively minor offenses. That puts the present loud debate over Myra Henley in proper perspective and crystallizes the reason why I have long advocated UK prisoners and patients in special hospitals should have access to voluntary euthanasia. The right to die. In October 1999, Ian Brady, housed at the High Security Ashworth Psychiatric Hospital, went on a hunger strike stating that he would rather die than, quote, rot slowly in prison. After initially refusing all food, he was force-fed with a tube by hospital staff. The following December, he collapsed and was taken to another hospital to undergo tests. It was the first time he had been outside of Ashworth Hospital since his admittance in 1985. A staff member told BBC, quote, The test showed no cause for concern, and Mr. Brady will continue to be refed at Ashworth Hospital, end quote. Following the release of the story, Brady wrote another letter to BBC in which he stated his intention of taking legal action over the hospital's decision to force-feed him. Earlier, he had been transferred to a higher security ward after hospital staff discovered a metal bucket handle taped under a sink in a laundry room and believed it could have been used as a crude weapon. The letter also detailed his allegation of being assaulted by a squad of male nurses and strip-searched. Part of the letter said, quote, I prefer to die healthy rather than rot slowly for their, their vested interests and expediency, end quote. He also said that he had spent 35 years in captivity and was destined to die in, quote, some garbage can. Robin Macon, Brady's solicitor, told the press, quote, certainly he wants the right, quote, 
Certainly he wants the right not to be force-fed, and if he chooses, the right to not eat and then to die. He wants the right to starve himself to death, but I cannot say anything more than that about his state of mind, end quote. Lawyer Stephen Groves added, quote, anyone of sound in mind who is not a minor can starve themselves or kill themselves otherwise. It is still legal to aid and abet suicide, end quote. One major impediment to Brady's fight for the right to die is the fact that he was diagnosed as being mentally ill, which may have a detrimental effect on his fight for the right to refuse medical treatment. Additional statements. Brady's letter states, quote, Myra is a chameleon who simply reflects whatever she believes will please the person she is addressing. She can kill in cold blood or rage. In that respect, we were an inexorable force, end quote. The letter also accuses Henley of indulging in, quote, destructive delusion and absurdity. She has stooped to new depths, alleging I coerced her to serially murder by use of drugs, rape, blackmail, physical violence, and practically every other crime in the book. All of the concrete evidence against her has been jettisoned in favor of transparent mendacity and evidential amnesia, he wrote. He told how Henley had claimed she had committed her crimes out of love for him and stated, quote, now she maintains she acted out of hate for me, a completely irrational hypothesis by any standards of the context of serial homicide, end quote. Okay, so I just want to take a second really quickly to applaud Casey for getting through that because not only is this written like a long time ago, but also in another country. So there are many words that are not used in day-to-day conversation anymore as it is today, let alone in our own countries. We had to look quite a few of them up to try to understand what it was he was saying as a whole because we are reading directly from his own writings. And so I just want to recognize Casey for getting through that because those were some tough readings to get through, but she did a great job. Okay, so now I want to move into some fun facts that I found while I was researching that I thought that you guys might think is interesting as well. So first off, I want to talk about something that Maureen actually ended up testifying to during the court trial. Uh, We've been talking about this, but it was interesting that this actually did get placed on record. So after meeting Brady, Maureen says that Henley no longer lived a normal life with, you know, like the typical teenage and like young women things, you know, like going to parties and dances and having girlfriends. Instead, she became secretive and claimed she hated babies, children and people, which we know from her upbringing that she was very responsible and was somebody that parents in the neighborhood could really count on for her watching their children and and trusted her a whole lot. So it's interesting to see that Maureen made that testimony that Henley had changed and done a complete 180 from who she used to be after meeting Brady. So it does give some weight definitely to the fact that Henley was no longer the person that everybody else knew and loved after meeting Brady. Another thing that I wanted to talk about is actually about Anne West, who we had said that she passed away in 1999. And basically, it almost sounds like that was the best thing for her. And that's sad to say, but the pain of losing her daughter was just unbearable. 
something that she had to go through, which we kind of hinted at this a little bit, but, but the detectives during their investigation, they were trying to piece together enough evidence to convict Leslie Ann's killers. And in that process, they actually had Mrs. West positively identify her daughter's voice on a tape made as she was screaming and begging for her life. Those screams stayed with her for the rest of her tormented life. For years, she had to take Valium and sleeping tablets to cope with the nightmares, and eventually the stress led to cancer, which riddled her breasts, bowels, ovaries, and liver, and finally took her life. She continued to campaign for years against the release of Leslie Ann's killer, specifically Henley, uh, from being released from prison. And she told her relatives, quote, I will still be a thorn in her side after I pass on. I will haunt that woman for the rest of her life. So can you even imagine being a mother to a child that was murdered and having to And listen to your daughter's last moments of screaming for help and knowing there's nothing you can do and knowing that she's gone. Like, can you imagine having to go through that and experience that in order to help the investigation to catch the killers? Like you would do it, right? As a parent, you would do whatever you can do to help with the investigation. But can you imagine how horrible that would be? I mean, I can't, I'm, I think that would like kill me right on the spot I can't imagine having to go through that nor living with that no yeah it's something you definitely would do but like you said it would be hard there's no like right way to deal with that situation there is no right way but yeah like that was what ended up that positive identification is what ended up kind of sealing the deal so she did the right thing but man like I can't even imagine no I couldn't imagine either there's no way that'd be so hard because it's gonna it's gonna haunt you forever but it's like you want them to be caught so like you're in a you're in a bad spot yeah absolutely crazy I try to put myself in their shoes sometimes to try to you know really understand what it was that they went through and man I don't know if that's one that I can fully understand you know that's something that is just really really sad okay next I wanted to jump over to Hinley's mother so we talked about how she ended up actually taking her side throughout the trial over her sister Maureen but what's interesting is that Retribution was a common theme amongst those who sought to keep Henley locked away, right? But what's interesting is even her mother insisted that she should die in prison, but her motives were different. This was because she was in fear of her daughter's safety and the desire to avoid the possibility of one of the victim's relatives killing her, considering there were so many threats against her life, especially from the victim's families. But it's interesting that uh, her mother wanted her to stay in prison for that reason, for her daughter's safety. But, And I understand that because at the end of the day, she's still a parent, whether her daughter is a murderer or not, or, you know, whatever the situation may be. Like, that's just in her DNA to protect her daughter at all cost. But it's just sad because it's like you're protecting your daughter so that she can survive. While because of your daughter, other sons and daughters lives were taken you know so that kind of i don't know that kind of irked me the wrong way but i understand it at the same time i get get it but i feel like maybe that's like a um 
like an excuse or a justification. Like she really does want her to stay in prison, but she wants to be a good mom too and not say like, yeah, I want my child to rot in prison forever. So she's like, because of her safety, that's why I want her in prison. You know? Oh, it could be an excuse. Yeah. Or, um, or she could just not trust her. You know, she could not trust that if she got out that she wouldn't do it again. Right. Mother's intuition. Right. (laughs) Trust it. Another fact that I found that I thought was interesting that I wanted to share with you all is that there were 20 local undertakers or morticians that refused to handle Henley's cremation. That's so many. (laughs) 20 of them. 20 people refused to, to cremate her body, even though she was already deceased. So four months later, Henley's ashes were scattered by a former lover, a woman that she had met in prison, less than 10 miles or 16 kilometers from Saddleworth Moor in Slaybridge Country Park. So she did end up getting cremated, but I can't believe that there were that many people that refused to do it. I can. Because then if you, like, if, like, let's say then your grandma dies and you're like, oh, we want to have her cremated. Let's take her here. Oh, no. That's the place that cremated that, Hinley you know, girl. that yeah. child serial killer. And I don't want my grandma to have anything to do with her. You know, like, I don't want any part, piece, or, like, anything to do with this serial, especially, like, sending them into whatever their beliefs are, like, sending them into the afterlife or whatever. I believe it. I mean, it's a crazy number, but I believe yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> it seems like more than I would expect. I understand it. But I mean, especially during that time, if you were trying to, you know, make money or whatever, you could say like, okay, we agree to do it. But like, you don't tell anybody, you know what I mean? That she was cremated here, like that nobody knows and it's um, anonymous or something. I don't know. I don't even know if that's how that works, but it's just interesting, I guess, to say the least, that uh, that many people refused it. I mean, because those are, you know, that's still money that they're missing out on, you know, but it does make sense for like the people afterwards not wanting to be in the same incinerator as somebody as evil as Henley, for sure. And I mean, we talked about the fact that Brady was, that he was cremated in their backup incinerator. So it's, interesting nobody wanted anything to do with them not even after they were deceased which i don't blame them so that's that's what that is and then the last thing i wanted to tell as like a fun fact that i found really quickly on this case is that it has been on television twice once in see no evil the moore's murders and once in a show called Longford. They were both released in 2006. Okay, and lastly, but most certainly not least, I have a couple of discussion questions for you. This case was a little bit tricky because I felt like there were so many questions that you could come up with, but a lot of them kind of result in the same answer, like for me at least, on like my opinion, you know, and like my theory on how the way this case kind of went, it all kind of resulted to one like big theory idea, I guess I'll say, but um, I definitely am interested in your thoughts and opinions and theories on this case. So 
Okay, so number one, let's just start with, you know, my go-to, <laughs> which you're not going to be surprised about, but it's nature or nurture, but I'm interested in your thoughts on both. So let's start with Henley. I think that for Henley, I'm going to say nurture because I felt like she was very much influenced by Brady and his thoughts and his ideals and the way that he thought about certain things like for example like the um not the fascination with nazis and then she went and you know dyed her hair and wore the red lipstick and kind of like absorbed and became that person that he idolized i guess um so i feel like she was very much she would be a nurture case for me yeah, I agree with you, Nurture, for sure. And I think that Brady's definitely responsible for that environment that created Henley to be the criminal that she was. So, yeah, I definitely agree with you on that one. But Brady, I think, was more nature, don't you? Oh, yeah, I definitely feel like he was more nature. Yeah, I mean, I guess for the information that we have regarding his upbringing... It's hard to say, right, because you would no normally go back to, like, genetics and, like, historical information, you know, but we didn't know who his father was or his genetic makeup because that information was never provided to him or anybody else, you know. His mom kind of kept that information away from everybody. So we don't actually know his father's makeup, but what we do know is that he was raised in a good home and he was smart. He passed all of his tests. He got into good schools, right? Yet he still had behavioral problems. He couldn't get enough of the life of crime, even though that was not the influence that he had growing up, you know? So to me, that has to come from somewhere. So if it's not what he's nurtured to believe and learn, then it has to come from nature. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. I feel like he was almost too smart for his own good. I agree. And he also had that unhealthy obsession for the Nazi era atrocities and his growing sadistic sexual appetite that definitely, in my opinion, contributed to his way of thinking as well, because that's what's going to drive those decisions and those thought processes. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that one. Okay, so we agree this week. That's cool. Um, so Henley, we're going with nurture and Brady, we're going with nature, which is really interesting that we're split. Okay. So my second question is, okay. So we talked about that Brady's childhood history revealed many indicators of him being troubled regardless of his environment. And Henley had very few of those indicators growing up, right? Like those same indicators were few and far between or non-existent at all. So my question to you is, how did a seemingly normal child grow into an adult so perverted that she would gain pleasure from the sexual abuse and murder of anyone, let alone children? This has so much to do with Brady. So he was that person that she was looking for. She was trying to find a mate, right? And she was mm -hmm. searching and was like, no, you're not going to do it. I want to live a exciting life right so mm -hmm. she finds brady who showed her that he lives this thrilling exciting life that she's been longing for she's young she's impressionable she wants that dominating male presence in her life to tell her you know how to think what to do and stuff like that and so she found that person and then 
he was so, he was too smart that he was able to notice that, manipulate that, and twist it into this disgusting fantasy that he had or whatever and make it into like a hobby for them. Mm-hmm. Which I feel like the only reason why she went along with it and stuff like that is because she fully believed everything that he had to say. Brady convinced her that it was okay and it was good and it was fun and we get to do it together and it bonds us and makes us even closer and all that stuff. Because he's so smart, he was able to like manipulate that into her. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think he definitely saw an opportunity and took advantage, you know, he, and he recognized that weakness in her of being young and impressionable, like you said, and just completely took advantage of it. I completely agree with that. I mean, she longed for him. She got him. Then she did whatever was necessary to keep him. No one at all, like in Henley's upbringing would have predicted that this is how her life would have gone you know nobody could have predicted that so Mm -hmm. she just came across the wrong person at the wrong time and unfortunately was in a stage of her life where she was willing and able to do whatever it was that Brady wanted her to do and I mean she was only 23 by the time all of this was over and she found herself in prison for life I'm trying to think back to when I was 23 and I'm thinking like Obviously, I can't imagine being in her shoes because I would never be able to relate to the crimes that she committed. But I just feel like there's so much life to live and she just missed out on everything. I mean, this was already done and over with and she's in prison for life by the age of 23. I mean, can you even imagine? Right. But you have to remember, like, this is a different era as well. And so the fact that she was so desperate to find that person was almost like a sense of belonging. Like, if you don't find your mate by, you know, by the time you're going to be old and haggard and like, nobody's going to want you, you're going to be single forever. And so she was desperate. You know what I mean? She was desperate to find that person. And that's, I feel like how he was able to take advantage of the situation. And granted, I feel like there obviously has to be something wrong mentally with her to make you know she was able to justify that but I feel like she was in a desperate time to feel wanted she like she did not want to be alone um and find where she belongs yeah yeah definitely I just it's a different time but again I can't really relate but like I kind of like can see it's crazy that she was only 23 by the time it was all over but like yeah it just went so fast you know Okay, my third question is, did Henley enjoy the process of the murder? Or was it solely Brady's influence? She got no enjoyment out of it at all. It was all Brady's fault. And there was nothing in it for her, if that makes sense. Or did she find some enjoyment with the process of the murder, which obviously includes the sexual assault and the burying and, you know, obtaining the cars and transport and participating in the premeditation of it, you know, did she like any aspect of that? Or was it just solely because she was trying to please Brady? I think that this is something that she grew to enjoy. So I feel like she um, at first was probably uncomfortable with it or was like unsure about it. But the more they did it and the more like, she saw Brady do it and she saw that it didn't affect him really. Um, 
then she was able to do more and more every time and help with the murder and the process a little bit more every time. And I feel like at the end there, she probably was enjoying it because they were laughing about it when, after the fact, when they had killed Edward, they were like sitting there laughing in their living room. And so it's like, I don't feel like if she didn't enjoy it, she would be able to do that. Like, you know, she would like, David said that he was like violently sick, you know, and that's a pretty normal response, but she was in there laughing, but this was also not the first time they had done this. So I think that she grew every time more and more to enjoy it more and more every time. Okay. That's true. I never even thought about that. And with that in mind, let's all think back to a time that we ended up, you know, dating somebody or even if it's like your current spouse or a past relationship, think about a time that you got with somebody. And even if it was a friend and you guys started hanging out a whole lot and they like to do something that you don't necessarily do, but you grew to like it or you watched them do it or you participated or you supported them or something like that. I mean, I can think of literally so many examples of this, either in my personal life or when I, what I've experienced watching my friends do or my family or something like that. Like, let's say I've never golfed a day in my life. And then all of a sudden I end up best friends with the best golfer on the planet. Well, I might end up learning golf because I want to support that, you know, and if they like it so much, there's probably something to like out of it. So I'm going to, start taking lessons. I'm going to go out with them, you know, that kind of stuff. And I'm, who knows, I might learn to like it and have a new hobby. So I understand that golf and murder are not comparable, but for me, that makes so much sense because I believe without Brady, there is no murderer Henley. So without his influence, I don't think we even know who Henley is today. We're not talking about her. She's not a part of this. She didn't kill anybody, not just specifically the Moore's murders, but she didn't commit any murders without Brady's influence, in my opinion. So the fact of the idea that you're bringing up of, oh, she grew to like it is smart because I agree because like we talked about, she's impressionable. And also, like I said, I don't think without Brady that there's murderer Henley, you know? Mm-hmm. I agree that I don't think that Henley would have started killing without Brady, for sure. I mean, I think Brady, he likely would have continued his life of crime and influenced murder and sexual assault of others. Like, he could have picked another female or, like, he was trying to groom David. You know, I think that Brady, regardless of whether Henley's involved or not. I think he continues his life of crime. I think he is a master manipulator. And I think he still coerces people to become involved in these types of crimes with or without Henley. He's just lucky that he got somebody as impressionable as she was. Yeah, I completely agree on that. The last thing that I'll say on this regarding the idea of whether she enjoyed the whole process of their murders is that Henley was looking for excitement in her life. That's why she didn't marry the first person that she became engaged to because she didn't feel that he could provide her what she needed and what she was looking for in life, which was excitement. But what we have to remember is that the average person doesn't become excited and aroused by murdering children right? That's not 
that's not what I would consider normal. And I don't, I think that I could speak for the vast majority of the population in saying that that's not an exciting hobby. So I think Henley, while she was looking for excitement, she could have gotten this from anywhere. For example, she could have found somebody who traveled all the time or bought her expensive gifts or they, you know, eloped and relocated somewhere far away that she had never been before. I think she had talked about coming over to the U.S., you know, she could have even found somebody who was committing petty crimes like theft or vandalism and gotten some excitement out of that where it didn't necessarily physically harm or put somebody's life in danger, you know, and she still could have gotten that excitement. It didn't have to be murder. She just happened to stumble upon Brady and that happened to be his way of life and she happened to be impressionable and therefore we now have murderer Henley, murderer Brady, and the Moore's murders, unfortunately. So I agree with you in answering this question in a whole is that I think without Brady, there is no murderer Henley. And that because this was Brady's way of life and she was trying to please him so much, she started to learn to enjoy the process. Probably, I would assume, like the planning part, you know, ordering the cars, being the first one to drive and you know, picking them up and luring them in and going out there and whether she was standing on the moors or in the car, whatever, you know, wherever she was at, she was there for the whole thing. And she got to experience this with him. And I think that for sure, she grew to and to like the excitement part of it, regardless of whether she liked the sexual assault and murder part of it is irregardless. You know what I mean? If you like even one part of that, you're she's going to participate. So I think that's a really good point that she probably did grow more and more and more to like it. I don't think that they were going to stop anytime soon. I know that Brady had made that comment about that. Oh, we were moving on to armed robbery, but everything else that we had as far as evidence and proof and documents and stuff that they had written down and what they had talked about and stuff like that, that was all early conversation and it grew to murder. I don't believe that them going back to armed robbery and going down a notch, I guess, on like the crime scale would have satisfied that excitement, you know, and that adrenaline rush anymore. I think that they, once you murder, I mean, and you get that excitement out of that, I don't, I don't think that you're going back down, you know what I mean? So for me, that's kind of my thought on it. And I think she was looking for excitement, but she could have gotten it anywhere. So she found it in murder, and so unfortunately, she grew to enjoy that. As you were talking, it made me kind of come up with a different thought, and I'll play devil's advocate here. At first, um, I said that she grew to enjoy the process of murder. I think that initially, her first um, enjoyment was the getting away with it. So she wanted that excitement in life. They did something illegal. They got away with it. Woo. How exciting that adrenaline. I get it. But as the crimes continued and you know, that's the crime that Brady chose to commit, um, at that time, you know, I think that she grew to enjoy that process as well. But I think that the main thing for her at first, in my opinion, what makes sense is that she, enjoyed the thrill and the adrenaline of getting away with something. And that's 
where she found her enjoyment at first. I do still think that she grew to enjoy the process of the actual murder and the sexual assault. But I think initially that's where the enjoyment came from. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it it appears that she was at least responsible for planning it and setting it into motion and then did really enjoy the getting away with it part because they said, yeah, we dug graves. We, you know, concealed these bodies. We went back to check on the moors to make sure that the bodies weren't there anymore. You know, I mean, it, it appears that that excitement of getting away with those crimes definitely contributed to her enjoyment of just the whole process. It's very interesting. Really good points on that. Did you have anything else you wanted to add to that? No, I think we covered it all. I think so too. There's, like I said, there's so many aspects to it, but it's just interesting to hear everybody's thoughts on it. When now we've, you know, presented it for what it is and the information that we have now, you know, what do we think kind of on the back end of it? Just that's why I like these discussion questions a lot. Um, but anyway, okay. So my last question is if Henley were to have ever been released on parole, like let's say that her appeals got granted and she was released on a parole or released free or whatever the situation was, she was released back to society. Would she have killed again? I'm going to say yes. Okay. Why? She was very impressionable when this whole thing started. She was very young, correct? And Brady was a very intelligent sophisticated persuasive young man okay granted their relationship was over but it's not like she was till death do us part with him you know what I mean she found somebody else and so would she find somebody else that maybe she could influence maybe would she find somebody else that (laughs) bad luck but that was also a murderer I mean maybe But I think that it's not out of the scope of possibilities that she would commit. She had that in her. And I don't think that that's something that would just go away and be like, oh, yeah, no, you're right. Murder's bad now all of a sudden, even though, like, I already did it, like, five times or more. So, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think Mm -hmm. that um, that would change. And I feel like something that Brady had persuaded her with – stuck and made sense and so then she would justify it with whatever he had told her like oh yeah murder is great and it's fun and it bonds our relationship then she goes and takes it to her next relationship oh no it's great and it's fun and it bonds our relationship like you totally want to do this with me sort of thing so I think yes okay I actually disagree a little bit on this one or I'm gonna say no and I'll explain why but I also can see your point of it like I definitely see that but I was leaning more towards no as my answer for this question and the reason is is because I believe that without Brady we don't have Henley as a murderer and so with that in mind and with her being a murderer only under Brady's influence you know, and having so many years separated and finally getting to see life for what it is and being given an opportunity at a second chance. I don't know that she would have gone out and committed another murder. I mean, maybe more crimes like embezzlement or something because we knew that she was pretty persuasive while she was in custody, which is a good point that you brought up. She probably learned a lot of those tactics from Brady. But I think she'd be able to influence people to do things maybe on her behalf or, you know, uh, 
And I don't know that it would even necessarily be to the level of murder, but I mean, I, I don't see her necessarily getting completely out of the life of crime, but I just think that it was Brady's influence a hundred percent of the way on these particular crimes. And without him, she's not even involved in this case at all. And so with that being said, I think that she wouldn't maybe this just wishful thinking, <laughs> but I think that she probably won it just because of the amount of time that had gone by and that kind of stuff. She said that she regained her spiritual grounding that she had prior to meeting him and all that kind of stuff. I think that she doesn't have Brady sitting there coaxing her into this. So like you said, she may dumb luck stumble across another murderer and like kind of get influenced to do these things again. But with her history, of being in prison and going through the system and, you know, being a part of all of the experiences that she was not to mention that she kind of shifted gears and was dating women and that kind of stuff, which they were murderers too. So I'm not sit putting that past them or anything like that, but I just feel like if she was given a second chance that she wouldn't have done it considering this was all under Brady's influence and they lost contact you know, after five years of being incarcerated. So, and then she was quick to throw him under the bus and all that kind of stuff. And so if she doesn't have somebody alongside her coaxing her and she doesn't have somebody to blame for that, I don't know that she would do it necessarily on her own because then who does she have to blame? You know what I mean? So I don't know. I, I feel like she wouldn't, but I, like I said, that could be wishful thinking, but I mean, I do think that she enjoyed the ride while it lasted. And I think she did like the rush of it. Like the whole reason that she got religious again, according to Brady, is because he told her to. Remember the pillars that he told her to stand on while she was incarcerated was educational studies, powerful contacts, and religion. So, I mean, the fact that she did get back into religion and he did say that, I mean, she could have actually just gotten back to her religious roots and Brady had nothing to do with it or... Like a lot of people were saying, she is a chameleon, and he told her, you know, do this, this, and this so that you can get parole, and it was working. I mean, like they said, they were going to get ready to let her out on parole, and then she passed away. So, I mean, was, was she doing that because she's all of a sudden a good person? I don't know. Was she doing it because Brady told her to? I don't know, but it is something to ponder, I guess. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, we'll never know, obviously, but I just think based on our other answers with these discussion questions, if we truly believe that Brady was the sole influence and reason for the murders, like whether she enjoyed it or not, I think without that influence, it's possible she stayed either crime-free or at least murder-free when she got out, but we'll never know. I just thought it was something fun to speculate, and I think it's like I can definitely see both sides of it for sure. Yeah, no doubt. And honestly, with her personality, if she has that excuse, well, it's just engraved in my brain because of Brady, you know what I mean? Then she may very well have done that again, but we'll never know. So luckily. <laughs> Thankfully, yeah. Okay, that is the last question I have. So addicts, head over to our Facebook page. On there, we will post a picture, which we post on our website and across all of our social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Crime Addicts Pod. But if you go to our Facebook page, scroll down past the Amazon link and go to discussion questions, 
for episodes number 24 and 25. You will see the questions that I posed to Casey today that we talked about and then comment below and let us know what you think. So I'll go over them really quickly one more time. So number one was nature or nurture for both Henley and Brady. Number two is while Brady's childhood reveals many indicators of the troubled young man he grew to be, in Henley's case, few insights can be drawn. How did a seemingly normal child grow into an adult so perverted that she would gain pleasure from the sexual abuse and murder of children? Number three, did Henley enjoy the process of murder or was it solely Brady's influence? And number four, if Henley were to have ever been released, would she have killed again? Thank you guys so much for all of your support. We look forward to communicating with you going forward. And with that, we will wrap up this week's episode on Cruella DeVille and her Nazi infatuated boyfriend. Come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and stay caffeinated.